Мы шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердце нашей земле... Hello, and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit the Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. Sergei Eisenstein's unfinished masterpiece, Ivan the Terrible, was no ordinary movie. Commissioned by Joseph Stalin in 1941 to justify state terror in the 16th century and in the 20th, the film's politics, style, and epic scope aroused controversy even before it was released. My guest, Joan Newberger, offers a sweeping account of the conception, making, and reception of Yvonne the Terrible that weaves together Eisenstein's expansive thinking and experimental practice with a groundbreaking new view of artistic production under Stalin. Joan Newberger is a professor of history at the University of Texas at Austin. She's the author of numerous books and articles on Russian social and cultural history and is the editor of the public history website Not Even Past and co-host of the history podcast 15-Minute History. Her most recent book is This Thing of Darkness, Eisenstein's Ivan the Terrible and Stalin's Russia, published by Cornell University Press. Here's Joan Newberger. So you have this new book, This Thing of Darkness, Eisenstein's Ivan the Terrible and Stalin's Russia. And I, I wanted to start our conversation by asking you about the title, which you take from Shakespeare's The Tempest. So what is the significance of this title, This Thing of Darkness, for Eisenstein's Yvonne the Terrible? Well, uh, there's a lot of Shakespeare and Eisenstein, um, although he's actually famous for saying that he preferred Ben Jonson and some of the other contemporaries. But um, there's Shakespeare, in, he writes about Shakespeare, Shakespeare ideas are in all of his films, and there's a lot of Shakespeare and Ivan the Terrible. Um, and, and also, back when I was trying to figure out which stories I wanted to tell in this book, um, The Tempest was everywhere. This was the height of post-colonial reinterpretations of the play, so people were doing really interesting things with it, and I kept running into it. Um, I ran into it at Shakespeare festivals in small towns I was passing through. There was the Helen Mirren film with a female Prospero. I started listening to Emma Smith's amazing Shakespeare podcast. Uh, and ran across Stephen Greenblatt's great essay on power in Shakespeare. So um, connections with Shakespeare, but particularly The Tempest, were everywhere. And and why? Because The Tempest asks us to think about power, um, about losing power, about using magic to retain power, about the magic of books, which Eisenstein absolutely shared. Um, Prospero is exiled to this island after his brother Antonios usurped his power and sent him off to sea in a little boat. And when he gets there, he takes over this island and he starts shaping everything he can to his will. So all this uh, really helped me think about how great artists um, 
who aren't always the most articulate political theorists, how great artists think about and represent power. And specifically in Eisenstein's case, Ivan is ambivalent about ruling, and he's especially ambivalent about the violence that he thinks he needs to rule, um, about what it means to rule, especially to rule over others. Uh, on Prospero's island, he tries to educate a—I'm getting to the point. On, on the island, he tries to educate a, a creature of some kind, the only native of the island that we see, the so-called monster Caliban. But um, Caliban is really ambivalent about the education. He's not as grateful as Prospero thinks he should be, um, and he thinks that he's the island's ruler, um, this island that Prospero's taken away from him. And so he plots with two other men to kill Prospero. Uh, something that's always represented as a farce. So my title, the line here, is Prospero talking to the other men's uh, in this in this plot, the other men's lord after they've foiled the murder plot, and he says, "Well, those two are yours. You know them, but this thing of darkness, I acknowledge mine." And it seems a little bit like a throwaway line. Um, you know, they're yours. This one's mine. I, you know, I get it. But the thing is that he never really does acknowledge Caliban as his responsibility uh, or recognize the role he's played in making Caliban what he is. And that's something that Yvonne does over and over again. And is and I think is at the heart of Eisenstein's portrait of Yvonne. It raises one of the central questions that Eisenstein wants to think about in Yvonne. When um, Yvonne's various enemies challenge him, when they oppose the centralization of power, are they acting out of pure greed um, or um, out of power hunger, out of selfishness, out of monstrousness? Or has Yvonne, in fact, provoked them? Is he responsible for their resistance to his policies? Sometimes Yvonne acts like he does acknowledge his responsibility for the disorder and the violence that result. And, um, but he always goes back to his original plan. His mission is to centralize the state under one-man rule. Yudina Dershavia, and um, to centralize the state at the expense of traditional elites in the church to found the modern state and to treat his opponents to his plans with ruthless violence. So his own responsibility is really um, something that Eisenstein wants us to be thinking about while we're watching the film. So in that sense, that title just made perfect sense. And then also, in some ways, more to the point, The Tempest asks us to think about what it means to be human and also what it means to be superhuman. So Eisenstein saw Yvonne's crises, his inner divisions, his inner contradictions, all those things he saw as um, things that we all share, that uh, he wanted us to see Yvonne as human, with human thoughts and feelings. And when he tries to elevate himself above others as superhuman, which takes place in part two, this turns out that it doesn't really solve his problems or, you know, slake his thirst for power, um, but creates new crises at every turn. So in that sense, too, this thing of darkness, Eisenstein, well, this thing of darkness, I think, is what Eisenstein is saying is a human trait in all of us. But um, at the end, Prospero um, leaves his magic powers behind, uh, along with his need for revenge, another major theme in Yvonne, and he embraces his humanness, something that Yvonne gestures to but doesn't really do. And that giving up of magical power and embracing mere human power is Prospero's salvation. So Yvonne remains a thing of darkness, even even in all of his triumphs. See, I, I was actually thinking of the title also a commentary on first how much obsession Eisenstein pours into making this film, but also the wider context of Soviet Russia in which the film is being made. And you make this point... Um, early on where this is a film about violence in a context 
a historical context in a, in a country that has over the last 30 years has experienced extreme violence. So I, I thought this, that this thing of darkness is also a reference to the wider context uh, in which this film is made. Oh, yes. I mean, you're absolutely right. And um, uh, there are pro- the, the, the way Eisenstein works, let's start there. The way Eisenstein works is that this is a film that is, that is constructed on multiple networks of images. So this thing of darkness is one of those. And um, we can look at the title, we can look at this idea from the point of view of Ivan himself, but you're absolutely right that for Eisenstein, he's talking about the entire context in which, in which he's working. Um, and uh, um, he made the, I mean, he witnessed enormous violence in his life. Uh, and he, he was aware, certainly aware, if there's any historiographical question here, he was certainly aware of the, um, of the terror uh, which caused him to lose numerous friends, his mentor, Sylvain Meyerhold, um, and, and others, Isaac Babel, who he worked with. Um, he had no illusions about Stalinism. Uh, and there's no question that, um, that this also refers to the whole, the whole context of Stalin and Stalinism. Yeah, which we'll, we'll get to more later. But first I want to ask you, you know, you, you are a historian, um, and you're treating this film as a historian for the most part, not so much as a film critic, though that's there, not so much as an art critic. Um, so when you approached, when you started to approach this project as a historian, what did you find? How did people understand this film and how it was made? And, and what did you provide to it in bringing a historical analysis? Well, I, I think the main thing I did is go back into the archives. So, um, and, and provide an archival, a, a reading of the documents that exist uh, to understanding what Eisenstein was trying to do in Ivan the Terrible. Um, critics have generally understood the film in a number of ways uh, that have changed over the course of the last 70 years. Um, let me just say that part one was released at the end of 1945, 19, uh, 1944, um, and it won a Stalin Prize. Then part two was finished a year later, and it was immediately banned, only released in 1958. And part three was never finished, partly because Eisenstein died in 1948. Um, so the reception's really complicated, but um, almost almost everyone who looks at this film or writes about the film writes about it using textual analysis, film analysis. Um, and I do that too. In fact, my, my main argument is that we can't look at it just as a film or just as a piece of history. Uh, Eisenstein really believed that, um, that what he was doing was historical and artistic and that the two were inseparable. So I really try and follow that through the whole thing. Um, most people who saw the film in 1946 outside the Soviet Union saw it as straight-ahead propaganda um, Eisenstein's Yvonne was a monumental leader. The film justified the way Yvonne dealt with his enemies ruthlessly. And overall, the film supposedly supported Stalinist power. Um, in the Soviet Union, it was never that simple. People, no one was really fooled um, by the surface. Well, I mean, some people were, but not that much. By the, by the surface narrative about monumentalism. And we have letters from readers. We have um, censorship discussions, which we can talk about later. But for the most part... Um, they, the, the portrait of Yvonne they found to be complex. 
Um, and then in cinematic terms, observers are split another way. Some people believe that Ivan showed Eisenstein to just have completely buckled under to Stalin, to have made a conventional biopic epic, that he'd abandoned the you know the great filmmaker that he was in the 1920s at, with his innovations and experimentation and so on. Um, uh, and these assumptions can still be found in a lot of textbooks and a lot of surveys and so on. Uh, then already in the 60s and 70s, studies began to appear that appreciated the aesthetic experimentation. Uh, and then it took another couple decades in the 90s and 2000s, people began to reevaluate the political position in the films. Um, but still, and, and still, there are many people who are skeptical that Eisenstein Sivan is an anti-Stalinist, even anti-Soviet film. So one of my goals in the book is to establish that by combining film analysis and documentary evidence and by showing the ways that politics and artistry are intertwined in the film, um, but really by trying to base all those arguments on a kind of systematic study of Eisenstein's archive. And, and the amazing thing about the archive is that it's huge. Um, he write, he, there, are, there are hundreds of, of uh, production notebooks. He wrote diaries during this period. He corresponded with people who he was working with. Um, and so... Uh, I really try and bring the historian's uh, appreciation for documentary evidence to the to the to the work. How did he? How was he able to make this film? <laughs> well, that's really I mean, two questions, the reason, right? Well, the reason why I ask this because you, you know you start the book by I mean he really is at a low period in his terms of his life and creativity, uh -huh. and here he gets this. He's he's been pitching films and they keep getting rejected. But then Zhdanov comes to him and says, hey, we actually have a project that we'd <laughs> like you to do, more or less, right? And so, and then, he, you know, he gets this commission, you know, from the highest echelons of Soviet power. And uh, he makes a film that is not, you know, is a very, comp as, you, as you point out repeatedly, very complicated, psychological, aesthetic, you know, a really beautiful film. Um, and so how did he go about getting this done? And the way he wanted to. Um, yeah. So Eisenstein was uh, very much in tune, uh, attuned to the nature of power. Uh, I think this is one of the things that makes the film great, but it also made it possible for him to make it. So he really understands patronage and the way that the film industry and actually all of cultural production in the Soviet Union, like... A lot of people have written about patronage in other areas of, of Soviet life, but it absolutely functioned in um, in the arts, and he really understood that. So it was a, this was a commission from Stalin. It came from Zhdanov, but it was absolutely coming straight from Stalin, and that meant that Stalin was Eisenstein's patron, and uh, and and the intermediary there is Ivan Bolshakov, who is also Eisenstein's patron. And Stalin is, is Ivan's patron. And patronage works, you know, it's, it's bilateral, right? Um, you, the, the artist has to do what his patrons want him to do. Um, but the patrons also have to make sure that this product gets made. And Eisenstein understood that complex relationship. And he called on both Bolshakov and on Stalin himself in an, at a number of times when, um, uh, when things were getting tricky for him. So that's part of this, the answer to that question. Also, he was in evacuation. So he began writing the film in uh, right away in January 1941, right after he gets the commission. Uh, then the Nazis invade in June. 
And then um, the Moscow Film Studios and two million other people were evacuated from Moscow in October 1941. And the film studios end up in Almaty, which was then called Almata in Kazakhstan. And, and, and Eisenstein uh, understood what it meant to be far away from Moscow. And he also used that to his advantage. Um, the film took, a, there were many, many postponements, um, and he used those to his advantage. He continued to read and to write and to really think about how he could create a film with a surface narrative that Stalin would approve of, and then proceed to sort of undermine that narrative in, in various ways, or complicate that narrative in a lot of ways. Um, and he really took his time, and he got in a lot of trouble for that. Even the accountant, even the film studio accountant writes him a letter saying, you are an arrogant you know, jerk, basically. Um, <laughs> how dare you think that you are so important that you can continue to use our resources to continue to make this film? You should be done by now. Um, but every time something like that happened, he was able to call in one of his patrons to call the other ones off his back. And he really, really took his time. So um, so that's another piece of the story. You know, one of the things I, I as, as a viewer of, of Yvonne the Terrible, one of the things I'm incredibly struck by is... Uh, Nikolai Cherkasov. He's his face is so powerful, and the way and the way Eisenstein films his face, the various angles, the use of shadows. How did Cherkasov come to play Ivan the Terrible? Uh, well, he he had been the star of Alexander Nevsky, Eisenstein's last completed film, and Eisenstein and Cherkasov had a great relationship. Um, they both had a real uh, like prankish sense of humor. And um, Cherkasov, even though he was a party member, was someone who was willing to take risks with his acting. He was really an amazing actor. Um, there was uh, this is a bit of a tangent, um, but there's a there's a wonderful essay in a new book called Unwatchable, a film book about called Unwatchable, um, that is about uh, Spielberg's Lincoln. And the author asks, what if Spielberg had cast not Daniel Day Lewis but Adam Sandler? or um, Nicolas Cage, right? And this is all about sort of how we shape historical films to do certain historical kinds of work, right? To make them prestige films or, you know, to get the right look for them. And the thing I was thinking as I was reading this that Cherkasov could do Adam Sandler, Nicolas Cage, and, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis. He could, he could do everything. And we see that in the film. Um, Eisenstein... Uh, 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 among the other things that he does it, with the actors is he comp he's thought of as being sort of anti-Stanislavski, anti-psychological, in a lot of ways he was. And the Stanislavski-trained actors had a lot of trouble with him. Um, but actually, he really combines a sort of naturalistic kind of acting with a, um, the biomechanical, really physical kind of acting. And Cherkasov could do it all. Uh, and there's one scene that I love that I write about in the book when he is trying to get Philippe who has now abandoned him to, you know, have some sympathy for him and 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 be his return to be his ally, uh, and he he in the course of a couple minutes he shows I think literally every possible emotion. It's really it's really a, a bravura performance. Yeah, he really. I mean, he so embodies the image at least my image of him. I'm I'm actually quite disappointed when I see the <laughs> early modern portrayals of Ivan Grozny because he just, you know, everything about his, just the way he looks, just 
really fills in the imagination of what Yvonne is. So in light of that, I want to talk about two things in that and related to that. First off, Yvonne the Terrible as a historical film. You know, this is a, a biography. It's a portrayal of a very important moment of Russian history. How does it function or what is your opinion of it as a historical film? Well, that's a really complicated question, actually. Um, because there are many, many parts to it. So let me say in general that most treatments of historical films, usually critics just like to point out what they got wrong, right? Uh, and readers find that very satisfying, right? We like to learn our history at the movie theater, but then we all rush home to Wikipedia to find out, you know, some other version, right? Um, but the thing that historians find interesting about uh, historical films is different, actually. Historians are interested in the choices that directors make um, to portray a historical figure or period, right, um, in a particular way. Uh, we know that films aren't real history, um, but what we care about is, is to see, is to look at these choices because they tell us something about the period. Um, and also then to look at what they can do with a historical figure that we can't do as historians. That's the limitation of depending on documentary evidence. Uh, we can't really get inside characters' motivations or their psychology or what they were feeling um, very well. Uh, and so all of these choices tell us a lot about the filmmaker, a lot about Eisenstein, and a lot about the time the film is made, a lot about Stalinist Russia. So that's the way I approached Ivana's history. How does Eisenstein shape Ivana's story? And what does that tell us about what he was trying to say? Uh, and what does that tell us about the Stalinist Soviet Union? So luckily, there's another area where we have an enormous documentary uh, body of documents. Uh, Eisenstein read an enormous number of books that we all consider, you know, sort of the main books for studying Muscovy in the 16th century. He read all the classic 19th century historians, Karamsin, Solovyov, Kluchevsky. He read Soviet historians. He read the 16th century sources, like the the letters that Ivan exchanged with um, Andrei Korbsky, the aide who betrays him uh, in real life and in the film. Uh, he read the, there's a, a German, Heinrich Staden, who wrote a a, a, a memoir, actually a report about serving in the Aprichniki, served as a mercenary in the in the um, in Ivan's private army, um, and he took notes on all of this. Right, he also read books on art of the period, uh, on weapons. He sent people off to museums to get photographs of real of 16th century objects. He really immersed himself in the story and in the period, um, and that's because so. Um, so, so he wrote a lot about this, but he also wrote about what he thought his job was as a historian. Um, you mentioned earlier that uh, Tchaikovsky Yvonne is, is your Yvonne, right? Um, and Eisenstein knew that. At one point he said to someone, um, you know, I, ha I have to get it right because um, I'm going to make the Yvonne who's going to be everybody's Yvonne after this <laughs> film comes out. <laughs> um, but he also had a sense of a responsibility to history. He really wanted to get it right. He didn't believe that that meant following the documents the way a historian follows documents. He knew that he got to invent things, um, but he wanted it to be psychologically true in particular, even if it wasn't historically accurate. Um, at the same time, he understood that all history is constructed differently by people living in different eras, you know, sort of a cliche now for us. Um, and he wanted to balance those things. He wanted to be able to construct a film that would be meaningful to people in his own time period. But that meant creating a film that was structured this, in the way that people think in his time period. I don't know if that makes sense. But those two things had to line up. And that, by the way, he also got from Shakespeare, from studying Shakespeare, who he thought did that perfectly. 
And, and what about, you know, Ivan himself? Ivan, who is Ivan Grozny in, in the film Ivan the Terrible? Well, that's the that's the sixty four thousand dollar question, right? Or the four hundred page question? Yeah. That's the four hundred yes. page question, right? Um, I, okay, so I, who is Eisenstein's Yvonne? Well, the the main thing is that there's no easy formula for explaining who Yvonne was. Um, and Nesbitt once wrote, um, Yvonne doesn't equal Stalin, and that's really true, except that he does sometimes, right? So Yvonne, uh, as I was saying earlier, Eisenstein constructed the film with a very uh, intricate set of interconnected networks of images and ideas. So it's all very slippery. Sometimes we can see elements of the historical Yvonne, of Stalin, of all the other rulers of his time, of his father and his other mentors, Eisenstein's. Um, he also, well, I, I said other rulers at the time, he explicitly compares him to Elizabeth I and Sigismund August of Poland. Um, but not only that, we have also Yvonne's entourage, who also carry really important historical and political trends and help construct Yvonne's character. So, of course, he was Stalin. Everyone expected Yvonne to be Stalin. And there's just enough little notes in his archive to show that Eisenstein definitely identified Yvonne with Stalin, at least part of the time. Wait, I want to ask you a question. Did Stalin know that Ivan was going to be Stalin? Stalin absolutely well expected Ivan to be Stalin. He he wanted um he wanted he didn't mind that Eisenstein made Ivan violent. He just wanted Eisenstein to justify that violence. It was one of his critiques cuz he didn't justify it well enough. <laughs> um I could talk about that more later when we get to reception if you want. Um yeah, so so but uh, so other scholars have listed those parallels. So I didn't feel like I needed to do that. But I just had more in mind than just criticizing Stalin and Stalinism. He really wanted to explain what he called the most atrocious things. And a famous quote: "He did not want to whitewash to explain." And here he's really talking about not just Stalin and Stalinism, but why we continue to produce rulers who are violent. And um, why, what, what, how does, um, how does a vulnerable young child become a bloody tyrant? So he actually, so I argue that um, he organizes Yvonne not around a biography exactly, but around a set of two sets of questions, really. Um, how does an innocent child become a tyrant, right? Is, Eisen, is Yvonne like other people? And in that sense, is he like us or like people in the Soviet Union? Um when is killing justifiable? Because that is sort of at the center of the film, Ivan's descent into violence, into murder. And then are Russian rulers like rulers elsewhere in the world? Um, it ends up being pretty much just the West. He was hoping originally to compare Ivan with rulers all over the world. So that's one set of questions. Um, he also wanted to ask, he also wanted us to think about the role of emotions in politics. Um, how, what happens when we're asked to love a ruler like a father? Um, how is politics gendered? Um, what does it mean to be a member of a brotherhood? So, so because he's constantly sort of showing contradictions and making things unclear, he's asking the audience constantly to judge Yvonne. And Yvonne himself is constantly asking, am I doing the right thing? Um, so, the, so he wants the audience to constantly ask, is he doing the right thing? Um, this also, by not focusing on the individual um, and sort of creating a kind of clear portrait, it gives Eisenstein a lot of freedom. So you asked, how, did, how was he able to make this film? I think this is one of the key things. Um, it gave him the freedom of not identifying with any single ruler 
um, but by asking about rulership generally, by asking about power generally. So the so then the parallels with Stalin can be really clearly Stalin, good and bad, mostly bad, right? Um, uh, so they can be unique to him, but he can also ask this bigger question about how do we how did we get here? How did we in the Soviet Union get here? And how does this happen over and over again? So what is the relationship then between the individual and history, given given that this isn't an ideological context in which history is driven by very large forces, by classes, by dialectical materialism. Um, though, you know, in the late Soviet period, late Stalin period, you do have this cultishness of the individual in terms of the individual hero. But how does, how does the individual Ivan uh, relate or interact with any larger forces of history? Are, they even, are those larger forces even present in the film? Oh, yeah, they're absolutely present. So uh, uh, Eisenstein draws Ivan's history as an as an individual, right? Um, but he also, Ivan is constantly having to interact with, um, uh, well, the, the whole story is sort of placed at a moment of transition. And Eisenstein's really interested in tra- historical transitions. He thinks this is the moment when we can really understand what human beings are about, is what happens during... Transition. So, what happened in Shakespeare's time, uh, in during the Renaissance, when um, legal legal norms were changing, for example, and we see that played out in *The Merchant of Venice*, and he sees that as being very much parallel to Ivan's own revolution, and of course, the echoes of the Russian revolutions of 1917 are all in the background, right? So, uh, Ivan's mission is to centralize power to create the great modern state. Um, and all, everything that he has, every every choice he has to make, um, is about that is about that mission. Um, and I, I think I'm really pretty sure that Eisenstein thinks that that mission had to take place. He understood the larger historical context of the early modern period when France and England were centralized and creating national armies and so on. Um, he knew that history, and that I think, uh, you know, shapes the way he thought about Yvonne. So Yvonne's constantly asking, am I doing the right thing, right? And by using violence to have to achieve this great mission, I have to use violence to get there. I have to set myself up as above other people. But what does this do to me as a, as a human being? What does it do to me as an individual? And um, uh, there's another connection with Shakespeare, actually, because um, Eisenstein, uh, I, Yvonne is very much like other Shakespearean characters who are also torn between their, their humanness and their 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 private roles, right, and their public responsibilities. So, so that's the larger thing. But uh, then Eisenstein has has a conception of history which is um, a spiral. He's not the first; it comes from Hegel and Marx and Lenin. But um, for Eisenstein, there's no sense that the spiral is actually leading in a in a positive direction. So think of think. I always tell people to think of a spiral staircase, right? So as history moves forward, however you define forward, people. Re, have to circle back to their past and and individuals but as well as society circle back to their past and pick up traces memories things that happened to them in their past and what's Yvonne's past he's constantly circling back to this traumatic motion, moment in his childhood when his mother was killed by the boyars and she tells him beware the boyars he's abandoned orphaned traumatized and he's constantly remembering, and Eisenstein cues us with visual images, with, um, with words, with gestures, um, with the great big frescoes that are all over. Uh, he's constantly cueing, 
cueing us also to return to Ivan's childhood, to remember what his trauma was, and to and to realize that he's as much motivated by political considerations, the great Russian state, that's a good thing, as he is by the need for personal revenge and by grief and trauma. So in that sense, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, this, I want to actually address this issue of trauma, um, because it makes me think as you're talking that the the allegory it's an allegory it's an allegory for the traumas that in which the soviet state itself was born in a, one could say or the soviet society was born in a massive trauma which is war revolution civil war violence do you get, have any sense of or even in your interpretation how much is einstein also speaking to his own period in terms of this reversion back to, you know, Yvonne's childhood trauma? Uh, yes, I do think that. I don't have, I don't have a document that says that. But, um, but he, uh, the allegory, if, if you want to call it that, that, that allegory of the Russian Revolution in, is very much present in the, um, in the narrative of Yvonne the Terrible. So my, uh, what, so the spiral is one structure of history, but another structure for Eisenstein that's very important that comes from his reading of 19th century ethnography of prehistoric people, of prehistory and of early peoples, first peoples, um, uh, and of what at the time was called primitive culture, but he had a particular political view of what that meant. But, um, he... He, he thought that the way history moved was that people who are vulnerable, who are suppressed, who are victimized, um, deal with that, deal with trauma, not by developing empathy for others, but by attacking their, their victimizers. And they attack them by becoming just like them. So the elite of the, the old Bolsheviks, the Oprichniki in the film, um, and the and the parallels are all there. Everyone in the 1920s could see lots of people in the 1920s could see the old Bolsheviks becoming elites, and we see this. Um, we see this in Yuri Sloskin's book. We see this in other places, um, in Shil Fitzpatrick's work, and so on. Um, we know that people thought of the old Bolsheviks that way, and Eisenstein shows the Aprichniki becoming just like the boyars. So in that sense, I think he 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 very much is thinking about trauma and the way people deal with trauma. And he's associating that with the Russian Revolution. So Ivan the Terrible is is about so much, as as you've been talking here, and also in your book. There's just so many layers of dealing with the issues of power, psychology, the state, history. You know, this is just a few of the topics. So, how do you understand this film as a work of Stalinist culture? Uh, well, I think this is the work of Stalinist culture, um, and as the work of Stalinist culture, it tells us a lot about the Stalinist period. Um, but to answer, really, I have to start by saying that uh, Yvonne is really a work of global culture. Um, Eisenstein was thinking about Yvonne and power in global terms. He read incredibly widely. Um, he himself owned something like 6,000 books, uh, art history, theater, literature from all over the world, ethnography, psychology, history, all the things that we see in the film are things that he read about that were represented in his library. And not just Europe, but um, the U.S., Mexico, Peru, Japan, China, Africa, the African diaspora. He was really interested in the intersection of all uh, of, of the individual and history in all of these different contexts and 
of the creation of art to represent or to work through what it meant to be human. Um, in, in one of the books that he was writing at this time, he was writing actually two books, really three, um, in one of the books that was only recently published called Method, um, the whole point of the book is he's asking what is art and what, and what is that? And, and, and once we figure that out, what does it mean to be human? Um, but he also wasn't alone. Um, he took these ideas further than anyone at the time, but um, as Katerina Clark has shown, for example, Stalinist xenophobia didn't really entirely suppress the internationalist frame of many artists, right? And a lot of the ideas about emotions, uh, about the way we process emotions, about acting, um, about politics, obviously, about the arts, come straight out of 1920s formalism, um, and uh, early film theory. Emma Wittes has written a great book on this. Um, and so we can see, so although Eisenstein was absolutely a brilliant individual genius, he was very much part of his culture. And as you asked earlier, um, you know, this thing of darkness is really the sort of question that he wants to answer, right? How can I talk about the world I live in uh, and stay alive? <laughs> Um, and then also, he's also working with some of the greatest artists of his period. So studying, or or yeah, so studying his work with Andre Moskvin, the film, the uh, cameraman who filmed most of Ivan the Terrible, with Sergei Prokofiev, who wrote the score, with Nikolai Cherkasov, who we've talked about. Um, looking at those are a masterclass in Soviet film cinematography, in acting, and scoring. So we really get a sense of the the kind of um, not only not only the best that anyone could do, but during this period, but um, uh, really important ideas about how they thought about what art is. Uh, and I said earlier that Eisenstein had a really great relationship with Cherkasov. He also had a really great relationship with Moskvin, and a more troubled but still a really close friendship with uh, with Prokofiev. And all three of them were men who were willing to take risks and willing to. Who, who understood what Eisenstein was trying to do and then were willing to kind of carry out what, uh, to, to embody what he wanted to do. I, w I want to go back to the issue of reception because you spoke a little bit about it, but, you know, one of the things I found fascinating, and, and this was something that seemed to be very common in the Stalin in the Soviet period where, you know, when people went to see something, whether it's a museum expedition or whether it's a film, there was some way for them to record their impressions in these, like, these books. So what did, first off, what did the general public who saw Ivan the Terrible, uh, from what we know, what was their reception? Well, we have a handful of letters. Uh, and, who you know, we have no way of knowing how, how, um, uh, how typical they were. Um, but the main thing is that, uh, that, that the official reception was positive. So we know, for example, that there were two reviews written to be published in Pravda, uh, Pravda and Izvestia. Uh, one was positive, one was negative. After Stalin saw it, they published the positive one. Um, but the people who wrote, and, and so, and that was very much like, you know, sort of the American, um, reception, right? That this was just straightforward propaganda, that it was totally great, did everything Stalin wanted it to do. So it's really interesting to me that the letters that were sent to the studio or to Eisenstein personally were all asking, what, who is Yvonne? I don't get it. <laughs> um, he, why is he so weird? Why does he move so weirdly? What's with the beard? Um, uh, and then, of course, there are a lot of letters from historians and other people like that who say, 
um, there wouldn't be a, a coffin in the in the Dormition Cathedral. That would never happen, right? Um, so there were those kinds of letters too. But mostly, I think what's really interesting is that people in the Soviet Union did not see Ivan as um, uh, as as a perfect ruler, right? As as a as an ideal Stalin or as an ideal medieval ruler. They saw him as really complicated and. Um, and they were they were wondering why there was all this paranoia and betrayal and all the things like that. Mm-hmm. And what was Stalin's response? Well, that <laughs> yeah. So Stalin's response. Um, let uh, let me back up and say that in order to see it uh, the way American viewers saw it, or as um, you know, Pravda had it, um, you had to do one of two things, right? You had to either only see certain aspects of the film, only see the sort of bare narrative. Um, Ivan is a good idea and a good mission. Everyone opposes him. He overcomes them. And, you know, in the end, he's going to he's going to get where he needs to go. Right. Um, You had to ignore all the um, all the images of Ivan's paranoia, his divisions, his um, his own um, betrayals, the betrayals of him and, and all the sort of sinister dark sides of it. Um, and not only that, there was an, a, a really dark, sinister f- scene that was removed from the from the film, um, where the Aprichniki from part one, where the Aprichniki uh, swear uh, 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 declare an oath to Ivan that puts their loyalty to him and to the state above their love for their family, for their mothers and fathers, and so on. Um, so you have to either do that, or you do what Stalin did, which is he thought that all that darkness was fine. Because um, people are dark. You have to kill people, right? Um, you get opposed. And what did he just do but spend the last, you know, however many years back you want to go, um, arresting and murdering people? So he was actually okay with that. He thought that that was a reasonable position for Yvonne to take. Um, so that that is how we can explain how Stalin saw part one as being not only acceptable— but um, a, but worthy of a Stalin prize. And what about part two? Well, part two is completely different. Um, part two was a disaster. The um, everyone who saw it was terrified of part two. The the other filmmakers who saw it when they were viewing it, you know, sort of as pre-release censorship, um, they totally understood that this portrait of Ivan uh, as an as a repentant murderer. And as someone who's constantly asking to be judged, um, and uh, um, as someone who's really troubled, um, that this was that this was not okay. That this wasn't going to fly. One one filmmaker who saw it early on, Ivan Puryev, said, "This even makes me want to side with the other with the with the with the enemies of Russia with the other <laughs> side." <laughs> so that's about as damning as you can get, right? Someone else said, "This is really Dostoevskian," and that was not a compliment. Um, so. They finally show it. Uh, so Bolshakov writes all this down. He says, OK, everyone didn't like you guys didn't like part one either. But that got through. Stalin liked it. That was fine. So we're going to we're going to make this work. So they show it to Stalin. At this point, uh, Eisenstein has won the Stalin Prize for part one. Uh, he went to a party celebrating those Stalin prizes and he had a heart attack. So he was in the hospital very ill uh, in February, March 1946. They showed a film to Stalin is there. A couple other people are there. Um, and Stalin hated it. The lights go back on. He, he says famously, this is, this is not a film. It's some kind of nightmare. 
I mean, I think he probably had some swear words in there. Yeah, he said um, this is a fucking nightmare is yeah, what he exactly. said, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, and Berea also. Um, and they – so Stalin really – hated Ivan's vacillation. We know this for a fact. He told Eisenstein, it's okay to have Ivan kill people, but he shouldn't have worried about it so much. Right, exactly. He's Hamlet-like, right? Again, Shakespeare. There's Shakespeare again. He's Hamlet-like. He's too, he vacillates too much. Um, and he, we also know, because he said several times that the Aprichniki aren't like a glorious national army, they look like the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> so, you know, they ha- and and in fact they are wearing black monks robes with pointy hats that in fact look like a an inverse of what the clan wore. Um but also there's I argue that there's another whole subtext here. Uh and this is based on some speculation, some close reading of the documents. But I believe that Stalin saw the pervasive homoeroticism in part 2 and this just totally freaked him out. And and Berea as well. So part two begins with this, with Kribsky pledging, he's already um, betrayed Russia and he's pledging his loyalty to King Sigismund of Poland. King Sigismund is dressed in, in, in an outfit that is coded completely effeminate. His gestures are female gestures. Um, and um, Kribsky presents his sword on his knees to um, Kerbsky, who looks at it with this kind of um, supercilious look of sort of, you know, there's lots of flirtation going on here. Um, and that's just the beginning, right? That's just the beginning of the film. The rest of the film, all the way up until the feast and the, the feast of the Aprichniki, there's all sorts of male homoeroticism and homosocial touching and petting and so on and so forth. Um, and the, I think, you know, so there are a couple clues in the, in the, in the sources that make us think that that this was one of the things that really bothered Stalin as well. And finally, um, what does this film say to you as a movie? Like, what do you like about it to write a whole book? And, and here I'm not, not in terms of, you know, it's, it's meaning just purely as an entertainment. Well, I love it. Uh, I mean, I can't count the times I've watched it. And I've watched it all different ways. I've watched little scenes. I've gone through and counted uh, shots and shot length and things like that. I mean, I've really watched it. Um, I think it's a, I think it's a, I think it's a beautiful and inspired, I think it's a beautiful thing. And I think the fact that Eisenstein actually made it is, um, uh, inspiring. I think it was a courageous act of will to make this kind of film, uh, under Stalinism. I mean, the whole, the whole production and reception of the film is, is just such a great study in the cultural politics of the whole period, right? Um, it's the only contemporary portrait of Stalin that we have that wasn't, you know, hagiographic, socialist, realist, but that was thoughtful and complex. He shows us everything about, the so- about Soviet ideology, um, or he takes on every aspect of Soviet ideology. He shows us how an egalitarian revolution can devolve into absolute power. He shows us how absolute power functions. He shows us how, as I was saying earlier, revolutionaries can become a new elite. Um, so um, he, and then in addition to portraying these um, recurrent crises of one man rule, he really, he takes on, and the psychology of, of violence, he takes on every aspect of ideology, of Soviet ideology, the positive hero, the collective hero, historical materialism, what, what else? Um, the idea of progress, the big family. And he shows that all of these are really complex and contradictory and dangerous. 
um, and uh, and that any and that a system that tries to sort of um, re- remove or eradicate all the contradictions uh, and to create you know a, a, a sort of unitary hero a, um, a single idea of progress um, an idea of a fam of the state as a family without any conflicts right in a family um, he thinks that that's really just as monstrous as anything Yvonne did uh, personally. So I think it's brilliant. And I think that it's incredibly deep. Um, it's, you know, Eisenstein wasn't thinking about making a film the way, you know, this was not a Marvel comic film, right? He really thought of it as, a, as War and Peace or, you know, a great symphony. Um, this, films, he believed, were um, absolutely capable of responding in complex and important ways to the world in which they were made. Um, And I think he really does that here. And I think that that's really, really extraordinary. Um, And I think, you know, it's, and also it's just such a great uh, case study in Stalinist culture. So cultural production. So on the one hand, it's, you know, we get to see Eisenstein as the great, incredible artist that he was, but also as a sort of typical, um, a citizen of Soviet society who's dealing with all the problems of Soviet society that everyone else had to deal with. That was Joan Newberger, a professor of history at the University of Texas at Austin. She's the author of numerous books and articles on Russian social and cultural history and is the editor of the public history website Not Even Past and co-host of the history podcast 15-Minute History. Her most recent book is This Thing of Darkness, Eisenstein's Ivan the Terrible in Stalin's Russia, published by Cornell University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review on iTunes, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye.